Welcome to the Adoption Connection Podcast, where we share resources by and for adoptive and foster moms. I'm Lisa Qualls. And this is Melissa Corkum. Don't worry, we get it, and we're here for you. Good morning, Lisa. Happy Tuesday. Good morning, Melissa. So hopefully by now our listeners have heard about a new 30-day intensive that we're launching called From Apathy to Empathy, How to Regain Compassion for Your Adopted Child and Yourself. Lisa, do you want to share a little bit how this even came to be? Yes, it's actually, it goes way, way back, way back in 2012. Um, At that time, I was doing a weekly or semi-weekly blog post called Tuesday Topics, and people would send me questions, and I would post them, and then we'd all discuss them. And I got a question sent to me that kind of, I wasn't sure what to do with at first, but I decided that it was an important topic. This mom asked me, essentially, what do I do when I don't like my child? All the alarms go off, like, we're not supposed to say that, right? Like, no adoptive mom is supposed to say that. But the truth is, what I found is when I put this question out there, I asked people, you know, how can we help this mom? How do we help ourselves? You know, yes, we love our children. We're committed to them. But sometimes those feelings of liking are hard to find when behaviors are really, really hard. Over the years, so now it's been how many years? Seven years since that blog post. That is still one of my most read posts every single year. So that tells me something. That tells me that there are a lot of adoptive and foster parents experiencing challenges in their feelings for their child, not their commitment, not their love, but their feelings of liking and enjoying their children. Last year, I decided to present a breakout about this at the Refresh Conference. And Melissa, you and I were talking and I was telling you about this breakout that I was putting together about how to overcome these feelings. Because over the years, I had done some research and study. I had tried a number of things myself and Russ and I had worked on different things to try to change some of those feelings so that they came in line with our heart's desire to love and care for our children. As we were talking, you told me about something you'd read about called Blocked Trust and blocked care. Yeah, I had this like light bulb moment while you were telling me about it and it all like came rushing to me. I had just finished one of Dan Hughes's books and I said, "Lisa, what you're talking about, it sounds like when parents are experiencing blocked care." And you had a little bit of experience, you had read the book, but you were kind of like, "I don't what is that?" And so mm-hmm. I started to explain what happens in our nervous system when we're in a relationship that's hard where it's not as reciprocal as our nervous system was built for. We put our heads together and you created this fantastic breakout at the Refresh Conference. And let me tell you, that room was packed out. I mean, there were people sitting on the floors, like standing against the walls. And so what that told us was this is still a hot topic. And honestly, you know, we have a lot of friends in the adoption community and it's not something that a lot of people are talking about. It's something that people are talking about like in some closed groups, but there's not a whole lot of resources about it, teaching about it. Every time I bring it up in a group when someone is feeling really guilty about how they feel about their child, I say, well, have you ever read anything about blocked care? And then like 10 people jump on and they're like, what, what's that blocked care? Can you tell me more? 
So um, I don't know. We just have, I think we've hit a really important part of the adoption parenting journey. Absolutely. Because what I found when I started researching the blocked care and blocked trust is that the shame falls away when we understand our brains and how we're wired and why these feelings are what they are. When we really understand that, the shame falls away, we're able to learn more, and we're able to change this so that we can become the moms we know we're meant to be. And so I think it's a very, very hopeful message and a very, very hopeful intensive that we are just thrilled to be offering. So this is a 30-day intensive. It's going to be daily simple practices to help you shed your shame, renew your hope, reclaim the mom that you know you can be, the mom that you remember yourself being before all the crazy. It is not necessary to be on Facebook. There will be a Facebook group specifically for folks going through this together, but all of the information will come to your inbox. Uh, so there will be a piece that you can read or you can watch it via a short video or do both. We want to make this as accessible to you as possible. So if you would like to get more information about this intensive and go through it with us, we would love to have you. You can just head to theadoptionconnection.com slash empathy to find out more and get started the cart closes tonight at midnight Pacific time. So there's just a few more hours to get started. So, you know, don't forget, do it, pause the podcast if you need to and go do it now. um, So you don't forget, there's just a couple hours left, but we really would love to have you be a part of the group and, and help you through this because we've been in these places and we didn't have help and it was, it felt, yucky. And so we want you to know that there's brain science behind it. There's things that we can do. There is a way, there is a path from this kind of apathy that we're having, this not liking to um, having a much richer experience with our kids. Sometimes our feelings of liking our children and feeling really uh, connected to them and so committed to being moms can wane in the face of very, very challenging behaviors. And so this is a perfect episode today. Our guest is going to talk about those behaviors. If you're struggling in your relationship with your child or this complex dance of attachment is really, really difficult for you, today's guest is going to be a gift because she's going to talk about the challenges and some different diagnoses and she has a lot of helpful information to share with us. Yeah, this week's guest is Karen Buckwalter and I reached out to her because I really wanted to have a guest, a professional on the podcast where I could pick her brain about reactive attachment disorder or RAD. It's talked a lot about when kids have really challenging behaviors. There's a lot of misnomers about it. There's a lot of really strong feelings about it. But I really wanted to know like the science, the brain science, the actual facts. And so Karen is a licensed clinical social worker and she directs a program at Chaddock, which is a multi-service agency providing a range of residential, educational, and community-based services for youth, a lot of whom have come through adoption and have histories of trauma. Karen has been instrumental in the development of an innovative residential program for adolescents um, with attachment disorders and complex trauma. 
and it's one of the only programs of its kind serving older adolescents. She has also helped create Chaddock's innovative in-home intensive program, which she is going to talk about during our interview. She has more than 30 years of experience working with children. She's been with Chaddock for 25. She's co-authored many journal articles, book chapters, magazine articles. Uh, So she works with kids just like ours day-to-day in a professional setting. And I think you're really going to appreciate the wisdom that she has to bring around this topic. Throughout the interview, you'll hear Karen reference both the DSM and TBRI. The DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. It's how our professionals diagnose mental health disorders in our kids and other people. And TBRI stands for Trust-Based Relational Intervention. It's a parenting model developed out of Texas Christian University with doctors Karen Purvis and David Cross. I want to offer a little word of encouragement to you before we start the interview. Karen's going to talk about some things that might be a little hard for us to hear. You know, I personally have experienced that when I hear people talk about attachment disorder and what we bring to the table. And I want to encourage you, do not shut down when we get to that part of the interview, because if you could stick with it, there's so much good coming at the end. And you're, I believe you will be encouraged by this interview. So hang in there. Karen, welcome to the Adoption Connection podcast. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. So attachment issues and adoption, attachment disorder, pretty hot topic. One that's a little bit overwhelming to tackle. So I was so glad when Robin Goebel introduced us and said that you would be a great person and that this is something that you kind of live and breathe in your professional life. So I'm excited to chat with you about that. Good. I'm looking forward to the discussion. So just to start off, you know, what are some of the signs and symptoms families would see or experience if a child is struggling with attachment? And do you want to even give us just a quick primer on attachment for folks who may not be super familiar? Yeah, so um, attachment is a a concept that was talked about originally by uh, John Bowlby, who was a British uh, psychoanalyst and psychiatrist and started talking about these activities this actually in the, in the 1940s. So the idea of the theory of attachment has been a, around for a long time. Um, in terms of what to do when attachment is insecure uh, or goes awry, that's more in its infancy in some ways in terms of how to actually develop with that. But anyway, his main idea was that our early relationship with caregivers forms an internal working model is a term that he used, a template for future relationships. So if our first caregivers are uh, responsive, available, connected, and meet our needs, anticipate our needs, and and do all of those things for uh, a baby and a young child, the child learns the world is safe, I can trust people, I'm special, I cry, and people uh, come in and meet my need, they get a sense of uh, agency um, out of that experience, versus a child in a circumstance where caregivers are unavailable or unresponsive. Um, And that child develops, obviously, conversely, the opposite internal working model. The world's not safe. I can't expect my needs to get met. Uh, Bad things may happen to me. Unexpected things may happen to me. What will 
we talked about was that those internal working models, those early templates are lasting. They're not unchangeable. And he came up with several categories, uh, secure attachment, uh, avoidant attachment, ambivalent or resistant attachment, and then disorganized attachment. So there were four classifications uh, that he originally talked about along with Mary Ainsworth, who measured them by using a specific protocol called the Strange Situation Protocol, where she exposed children to uh, strangers and while they were with their caregiver and there was a series of events that go on in the strange situation um but the the most important aspect of it is when a caregiver comes back in the room after leaving it we call that uh reunion behavior and seeing how the child responds to that caregiver um, whether they go to them and are comforted by them whether they avoid them or they do something very disorganized what we would see with that that fourth category might be they approach the caregiver, but they walk backwards. So there's something not right. There's sort of an approach avoidance kind of thing. If families are parenting kids who are struggling with a more ambivalent or disorganized attachment, and, you know, obviously our kids come to us through adoption. So this is, you know, not usually a, like at fault, I guess that's a terrible word, but of fam- adoptive family, this is, you know, a lot of our kids come to us already with these kind of dysfunctional attachment styles. What are some of the other behaviors or symptoms that families would see day to day once a child comes into their home? Yes. Well, I think um, that they would see children perhaps not approaching them for care, um, not coming to them to get their needs met because the children have have learned that caregivers are unresponsible or unreliable. Um, another, you know, the, the new uh, DSM to diagnoses the reactive attachment disorder and then the disinhibited social engagement disorder. So with the, the DSED, it would be kind of the opposite of not coming to you. These would be children that sort of just seem to go to anybody, more indiscriminate. Like they don't seem to have fear of just walking up to a stranger and just kind of wanting to go home with them um, and, and not um, doing any kind of secure-based referencing or like looking back to the parent in secure attachment. We see a young child kind of glancing at the parent like is this person okay because they're knowing they have to reference that with the parent um, as opposed to just kind of going up and and just um, not caring about safety or or being aware of that so you kind of the two different directions there there's also um, just a lack of joy and connection and reciprocal interaction and some of the children may look depressed actually sad a lot sometimes they may have issues of seeming to just get very angry um, or upset about things we look more into this we understand trauma is in the background uh, here which is has to be in the diagnosis. There has to have been caregiving that was inadequate, um, which often translates to traumatic experiences the children have been exposed to. So they may um, seem to have tendencies to want to very clearly control their environment because there's a feeling of if I don't, if things aren't controlled, I don't know what might happen to me. That could uh, be another thing that 
um, parents would see. So those are some uh, things that are, are fairly common that you would see there. But I do want to say, I'm always hesitant talking about what you would see in the child because attachment's relational. Mm. Like it's not just a thing that stands there by itself, like perhaps depression or something like that, or anxiety. We think of those. Um, when we talk about attachment, you can't talk about it without relation to another person. <laughs> so we have to look at this in the context of, of the relationships. And, and I think many of us also feel that the current diagnoses that I just mentioned that are in the DSM-5 are inadequate. Are those the only two DSM diagnoses that you see or what are the other kind of DSM diagnoses that have to do with attachment or some of these other behaviors is reactive attachment? I know that's been, you know, a hotly debated subject in the adoption world for a while. Is that still a diagnosis or what does that look like? Has it been broken down into other pieces, kind of like what you were talking about? Yeah, so so the two diagnoses that uh, are reactive attachment disorder and disinhibited social engagement disorder, those are the two that are in there. So those are kind of contrasting ones that that I was describing. Many of the leaders in our field would say even that reactive attachment disorder is truly really rare, um, that there's really often a lot of other things going on. Other diagnoses that I see that sometimes are more appropriate are anxiety issues at times. Um, depression is often present. I feel like people have taken reactive attachment disorder and just tried to make it this diagnosis that you just kind of throw everything into, then that's really a mistake because there's so much that can be going on with a child and to just like lump it all um, into this one diagnosis is really dangerous and not good assessment. Can we go back to, I, I want to come back to diagnosis in a minute, but I want to swing back to something else you said about, you know, just attachment being that two-way street in adoption. It's, you know, so many different streets, right? Because our kids come to us with relationships with first families, possibly foster families in between. As adoptive parents, what is our responsibility? How should we look at that attachment piece? Because a lot of our children are come, coming to us having come out of, you know, two-way relationships that were unhealthy or broken, and now we're inviting them into a healthy relationship, but it's not just that easy, right? That once they're in a healthy relationship that they can accept and receive care from us or verbalize the care that they need from us. So how does that work when you work with families um, and you're recognizing attachment as a two-way street? What would you tell adoptive families and foster families? We're talking about kind of chunks of things. One is DSM diagnoses. That's where the reactive attachment disorder, disinhibited and social engagement disorder comes in. Attachment classifications, in terms of the different classifications I gave you, there's like a different thing. Those came out of um, bold work and have been studied by developmental psychologists, and um, they're not in the DSM in that way. So what I want, so I just kind of wanted to to separate that, but we do have a way to measure adult attachment classifications and the research is called the adult attachment interview. What that interview has shown um, as it's been analyzed in many, many cases, many cultures, 
well over a thousand and beyond of these interviews have, have been done, that 58% of the non-clinical, that means people who haven't sought out some kind of services for, for um, mental um, needs, 58% are secure. So that means we've got close to uh, 40% that are not, not secure. So 58% of adoptive parents, if they represent a non-clinical sample, um, will have a secure attachment pattern. That leaves a large number of adoptive parents that if, if we use the statistics from the general population, that leaves about 40, over 40% of them do not have a secure attachment themselves. So when we talk about bringing a child into the home and wanting to parent them toward secure attachment, uh, we have a large number of, of folks that that's not their own classification. And so that, that is where I want um, families to understand um, that this isn't like just this thing that resides in the child, that, that it is uh, something that goes on in relationship um, between two people. So I think that one of the, the important things is for parents to get back to what you were saying, and one of the things that I tell parents is, is that uh, you have to, in addition to looking at the child's history, we want to be able to look at your history and what your history of attachments and close relationships looks like. Because um, we can't just, in when I'm working with somebody and there's a concern about attachment issues, my client is the relationship between the parent and the child. It's not the child. It's the relationship and what both are bringing into the situation um, rather than it's the standalone thing that just lives in this child. That is the, the first piece that I really want to get uh, share with parents um, because I think there could be there can be a tendency, particularly because of some of the really wrong information parents are being given, um, that they, they could feel like, are you trying to blame me or something like that? So I want to have a good discussion about that. As therapists, we're in a really difficult situation because we must look at what the caregiver is bringing to the relationship. But a lot of the groups that have been formed for adoptive parents and you know rad parents and things like this, they say, if the therapist is asking you to kind of look at yourself and what you're doing, you need to fire them because they don't understand rad. They don't understand that. And so we're put in a real dilemma that if we at the research and honestly talk about it's how both of us are coming together and how both of our vulnerabilities are being triggered by each other um, rather than it's just apologize this child as though you're a victim or of the child and that, that there's nothing there that you're contributing it it's a real setup for us as professionals who realize that one's own history as a parent is very important as well as the child's. Yeah. We talk a lot about, you know, what we bring to the table here at the adoption connection, even in much simpler terms of our own self-care and how we're doing mentally. And, you know, I imagine a lot of that does have to do with how we relate to people and our attachment style, even though we might not realize it. What are the best resources for parents Obviously, finding a professional who understands the adult attachment interview would be kind of 
top of mind? You know, what are other things that parents can do to kind of, is there a way to self-reflect and evaluate, you know, what, how you were raised, how you relate to other people in terms of your attachment style? Yes, absolutely. And I also want to emphasize having an insecure attachment pattern is does not mean you're pathological or that it's not a mental health diagnosis. It's a way that you do relationships. You can have insecure attachment issues and be very high functioning and successful and have relationships. But what I often say to adoptive parents is I feel like a child coming in with history like that kind of shines a light on any vulnerabilities you do have in that area. <laughs> so, so for example, say, as we talked about, the children can be resistant to care and, and, and kind of push you away because of their history. Well, suppose you have a history where a parent was not very affectionate to you or, or almost sort of, in a way, pushed you away. Well, that's going to be a big trigger, right? When the child does that to you, it's and be very familiar from other relationships that could have been painful for you. So I think, like you said, being self-reflective, there's a book that I really recommend by Dan Siegel. It's called Parenting from the Inside Out. And it does kind of have a list of questions. You know, how, how was I raised? How did discipline happen in my home? What did I do when I was upset as a child? There's lots of things that, that come up in terms of exploring that. And it's so important for parents to understand we are wanting to explore this in a compassionate way, not blaming way. I often too will have parents that as I explore this with them, they'll say, they'll say things like, well, we weren't allowed to be angry in my house. That means that person's completely unprepared for the level of anger some of these children may be expressing based on the difficult circumstances they come from. Um, a parent like that may feel almost like they want to run and hide. You know, like this is just not what I, I've been around. This is not what I know how to handle. I didn't express that. It wasn't okay. Um, I never had models from my parents. What do you do with a person that's, or a child that's acting like this? So I think sometimes it's just things are just almost even out of a person's frame of reference. You can do it through reading. You can, you know, talk about some of these reflective questions with your spouse. You can do this through journaling. It doesn't, of course, I, I mean, because I'm passionate attachment theory, I have gotten very into the adult attachment interview, but that's not what it has to be. I mean, that is a special instrument that I think is very good, but I guess what I would, um, you know, want parents to realize is a, a therapist asking you to look at your own history and what you're bringing to the table does not mean the therapist is blaming you and doesn't know what they're doing. Just to clarify, you know, there's a difference between blaming the parents, but giving them all the possible tools to help their child and knowing that what we bring to the table is a big part of the picture and knowing how to help our child move on a path of healing. You know, like Dr. Purvis said, we can only bring, you know, a child as far as we've brought ourselves. And so it also doesn't mean that our children aren't responsible for their actions or that we're, that we're accepting or condoning some of those hard behaviors that parents that are seeing, you know, who have attachment challenged children in their home are seeing. It's none of the, those things. It's just bringing you know, we need all the help that we can get when we're in these really, really yeah. tough situations. And this is just one piece of that puzzle, but it's a really important piece. 
Yes, yes. And I certainly recognize and um, that there are a lot of tools that that parents need to sometimes deal with the um, difficult behavioral issues that they have with their child. So, so I'm not saying, oh, just look at your own history and then you can all figure this out. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, you know, know that that also is a piece of the puzzle, what the child might be triggering in you and how can we support you in that? Um, because what, what happens is many of the things that we um, recommend in TBRI, if they're done in anger and when you're really triggered, they're not going to work. So what I'll see is I'll see parents will say do over doesn't work. Well, what, what is really happening is the parent is really angry, really frustrated and like, do you want to do over? <laughs> They obviously didn't do what you wanted them to. But then when you when you bring uh, that anger and frustration into it, that's going to further trigger the child's fears. What I see when, when parents don't understand their own history and what their own vulnerabilities are, they try to execute the tools that we give them, whether it's do-overs, whether it's how to set structure, how to uh, give adequate amounts of nurture. It's like they can't execute what you're kind of telling them to do because some of these other feelings are getting in and triggering them. Does that make sense? Yeah, Does absolutely. Does that make sense what I'm saying? In, in some ways, I was just even framing it in my mind as as hard as it is to self-reflect in this time where it feels like our child might be the problem is, mm-hmm. you know, we, one, only have control over ourselves, which we talk a lot about here at the Adoption Connection. But two, you know, those behaviors are extreme. They are dysfunctional. They're all the things that we feel and they're, they are triggering us. They affect us as parents. And mm-hmm. I think to understand this idea of adult attachment and this is a two-way street is almost empowering to parents because it helps us understand why these behaviors are so triggering and disruptive in our lives. It helps us understand what we can do about it because sometimes we can't change the behaviors right away or as quickly as we want. So this gives us another way to come about our situation and, you know, kind of feel better about it, but in a way where we have control and all of these questions about thinking about our past and how we were raised and what we're bringing to the table rather than you know, pointing the finger back at us actually are empowering us to have our own control over a situation that seems very much out of our control. Also, you know, I sometimes um, I hear parents say they don't believe in a rat or whatever because they haven't lived with this child or something like that. I do want to say I am and not, not in any way saying this is an easy task or these kids are easy to care for. I've worked in residential. We do in-home um, work intensives all across the country. Both people in the intensive came back to Chattuck, one with a big bruise on her face and the other one with a fat lip. But I'm saying that label and, and some of the other ways that we're viewing this are just really a misunderstanding of what is really going on that it's that it takes it's a dance that two people get into I know 
that there are parents literally out there getting beat up and afraid to go to sleep at night. Um, so I do, I do get that. I have seen that. I've been in homes like that. Um, so I, I do want to be clear on that so that there's not the feeling I don't get how bad it is or something like, I mean, to a degree I don't because I don't live it every day, but I also don't want to minimize that by sharing this other piece of the information that I think is important. Yeah, I think that's really important. Thanks for sharing that. A lot of times we hear in TBRI, you know, the biggest takeaway people have is that behavior is communication and that our kids need, have these deep, deep needs that haven't been met and that they need to be met. You know, I've seen in some other groups of parents with kids with attachment disorders, a lot of them have probably been diagnosed with RAD. Whether that was an accurate diagnosis or not is probably left to be determined. But, you know, are children ever choosing to misbehave? And how do you explain that like phenomenon when children can seem to be able to like turn on or off behaviors in certain situations? You know, we say a lot of times like look at it as a can't, not a won't in these behavior situations. But what about these kids? You know, and maybe this goes back to what you're talking about, you know, in public, some some of our kids seem to be like family shopping. Um, Mm -hmm. How does that like on and off behavior come back to how kids are relating to other people? Melissa, that's such a complicated question. And the reason it is, is because for every child, it could be different. So, I mean, one of the first things I would say about that is um, if you have biological children or, or children you don't view as having attachment issues, who do they always behave the worst for? I know moms who are like, you know, they're, they're a three-year-old starting preschool and the preschool like, like, oh my gosh, I'm barely surviving, you know, this child at home. She's a disaster. So, so let's first say developmentally, that's a case with many children that don't even have attachment issues, that they look angelic to other people and you're like, wow, I'm surprised the teacher's saying that because what I see was not that. So let's say that first. Okay, that, that first piece, that that's kind of a not exactly abnormal uh, in general child development. The next thing I would say, I think, is that um, that kind of relates to both this is like where you feel the safest, you act out the most. So I think that goes for at at times that goes, you know, we always say we're the worst for our family or something like that. Um, And so I think for even for our children um, who who come from a history where there's been uh, attachment disruptions and trauma, you know, they they may be being on better behavior as sort of what sort of a hypervigilance. Like, I want to make sure everybody out here likes me. I know my family is not going to get rid of me. And they may or may not know that many of our children are afraid they're going to be getting rid of. But, you know, I can't do that out here, but I can do that at home because that's a safer place. So in that way, although it's taxing, it can be, you know, a good sign of things. It could also be that there are certain unknown triggers that are happening in various environments. Trauma can be triggered so easily. Just the tone of someone's voice the way someone's hair is. Um, There's so many different things that can be going on. So that there could be a trigger in one setting and not that same trigger in another setting. And to us, the settings look kind of similar. So why are they this way that they, you know, this way in the other place or not? Another thing that I would say about that is I think all of us, when we're 
you know, well rested and, you know, we're not hungry and we have all of our basic needs met, we function at a higher level, no matter what our history is. So um, it looks like the child's turning it on and off, but maybe they're particularly tired and hungry, but we didn't know that. The other thing I think too is if your fear as a child is closeness and intimacy, because we know trauma has happened with caregivers, which a lot of, for a lot of our children, which is a totally different thing than trauma because you were in a flood. So we know that at home, we're pushing uh, that closeness and connection with a child versus at school, they're not trying to develop close and cl- closeness and intimacy um, with the child. It, it's an it's an educational environment, and so it. Do you see how I'm saying that this can be relate to so many different things, even though it looks like they're turning it on and turning it off. Another thing that I often hear is, "Well, they could do it yesterday, or they've done it three times, so this fourth time, why can't they do it?" Again, that could relate to a lot of the factors I was talking about earlier. That, and we also know what is very often diagnosed as reactive attachment disorder is in utero exposure to drugs and alcohol. So there's just so many pieces that can go into that be as simple as it looks like they're turning it on and on, you know, they can do it here and then can't do it there. I think we have to look at so many different pieces to why that could be happening. Yeah, I think those are such good words. I often use the illustration of just us as moms. You know, most days we cook dinner for our family, but some days we order pizza, you know, like, and it's not that we couldn't. And there's, you know, not great always this like great reason for why we're laying on the sofa, you know, watching movies and eating Papa John's. But as adults, we have our own ebbs and flows and rhythms and and reasons why at the end of a long week, we might not be able to, you know, do a basic skill. That's such a great analogy. Oh, I'm going to use that analogy. (laughs) Now that we have this kind of better understanding of some of the whys and what's going on from an attachment level and how that's impacting behavior, I guess the big elephant in the room and the question that probably all of our listeners are thinking is like, now what, but what do we do? Do you have some practical tips for parents, you know, what's the best treatment path for kids where attachment is a struggle? And I know there's a lot of other kind of comorbid things like the anxiety and the depression, the exposure, all of those things. Um, But where do parents go? What should they look for? What can they do at home? What should they do outside the home in terms of professional services, those types of things? One thing I would want um, parents to know is understanding attachment issues, understanding trauma issues, and being ad- adoption competent as a therapist are three different buckets. <laughs> um, and so by, by that, I mean that I've worked with some uh, therapists or, or children who've gone to therapists. They, they did seem to have a good understanding of attachment, but then they would say things like the adoption really doesn't matter. And we've never talked about that. Okay. <laughs> All right. That's a problem, you know, so I think you're looking for somebody that understands, you know, all, all of those things. Another thing that I think is really um, being forgotten, um, particularly in transracial adoption, is there are also 
racial issues often going on here. If, if it's a transracial adoption, perhaps you've adopted a child of color, they are dealing every day with various microaggressions and experiences in this culture of being a person of color. That starts very young. We know that that's starting in preschool already. And so I think a person having an awareness of that, because what I see is sometimes, um, you know, kids will want to tell stories about that and people will ask their attachment issues or they're hypervigilant. They think that's happening, but it's not really happening. Guess what? It is happening. <laughs> so, I mean, I, it's almost making it sound like there's almost nobody you're going to find with all of these things, I'm sure. And, and maybe we're not um, all competent in all of these areas, but we, we need to be open and willing to learn. So I think that you would want someone that knows what, what I would say is how to work dyadically, like work with both you and the child. I think that TBRI is fabulous. I think it's great if you could find somebody that's a practitioner um, or has that training. However, it's, it is a parenting approach. It is not a therapy. And I think people also get that very confused. So a, a therapist who's just been to TBRI training but does not have significant clinical skills and looking at attachment and trauma issues. I shouldn't say just TBRI training, but I just want to, it's a wonderful training, but it's a separate thing. It's a way for parents to interact with their children. In my own career, have found TheraPlay to be absolutely invaluable. Um, Dan Hughes's work, Dyadic Developmental Psychotherapy, has been so valuable to me, and so has EMDR. I think that I can better serve listeners by saying these are sort of the, the categories to be looking at. If a therapist doesn't consider themselves well-skilled in one of those areas, maybe they can, can read and, and, and learn from you and work with that. But if, if it's not even on their radar or their map, <laughs> that adoption matters or that attachment matters or that these aren't situations where you can just get out your TFCBT manual and we'll all be good to go. <laughs> So understanding the complexities of it, I guess is really what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. So what I feel like a lot, the reactive attachment diagnosis, the attachment piece, all of that, some of the misnomers around it has kind of sucked the hope out of some of these families who are dealing with really, really challenging behaviors day in and day out. And maybe they have worked with professionals who didn't un understand the complexities. And so it's really disheartening when you go to a professional and they still can't help you. Yes. The needle isn't moving. You have worked with a lot of really tough kids with really complicated histories in a lot of different situations. Like you said, you've worked in residential, you've done in-home intervention. Obviously, if you're at the point of in-home intervention, you know, there's a lot of complicated things going on. What can you tell families about prognosis and hope and does the needle move for kids who are so struggling? Yes. I, uh, and, and, you know, I think the thing to hold on to in the moment is it's not always evident right away. Change can, you know, we have had um, kids discharge at Chaddock where I'm like, well, we did our best and I hope it holds, but, you know, 
don't really, you know, you, you have this feeling of, uh, are they going to make it? And they come back to us years later and they're doing fabulous. You know, they're doing really well. So I think holding on to that piece of hope, even when like right in front of you, it's looking like this is just not going anywhere. You know, like knowing that therapeutic care or therapeutic parenting or eye parenting or whatever we want to call it in the be to the best of your ability um, that these things are making a difference um, it's almost like they're I feel like you're you're planting all these seeds and and eventually there's kind of a tipping point where things do start to get better you know one of the things that I always say to families is I can't fix this my goal is to reduce the intensity the frequency and the duration of these behaviors so that a child can live in a home setting and not, you know, need 24 hour care by a team of people. So I think also ideas about what successes need to change. Some of these things aren't just going to be gone. These are going to be vulnerabilities that our children have throughout their life. Um, but they can get better to the point that we can all function together as a family. And I think that the reason we developed the in-home intensive program, we're flying to families and working with them intensely in their homes, is because people were calling Chat Up for residential. And when I heard, like, they had tried A, B, and C, I had so many other ideas of what could be tried besides residential, um, but they just didn't have that in their communities. You know, you've tried three therapists, you've been in therapy for years, and now your child's going in and out of the local psych unit or juvenile detention. Surely the next step must be residential. I'm saying maybe, but maybe it is still getting in touch with the right people that can really give you great tools and understand your child. It is, I am so sad at our profession at some of the poor information that we are giving families around this issue. I mean, shame on us. Um, we need to like start reading and start listening to our parents and, and, you know, get a, a admit what you know and what you don't know and then refer out if you really get help. So I think there is lots of hope with the right kind of services. What I'm seeing a lot is trying a lot of ineffective services or, you know, the way they're being implemented is ineffective, maybe because some of the, the issues we tried before. Um, but I think there's a lot of hope. Dr. Purvis used to talk about, you know, there's really no child she ever worked with that you couldn't reach the real child inside under all of these defenses and all of these behaviors. But it takes the right kind of help. And that is what bothers me is that I think often uh, parents aren't getting the right help, the, the right kind of help from professionals. They sometimes then turn to each other and some of the ideas that are garnered in some of these groups that people are in are really not helpful either. <laughs> um, people call me and ask, do you know someone in such and such area? Do you know? And a lot of times I do and I'm always willing to help with people. I have an attachment-based therapist Facebook group with 2,700 people on it. And so I can put stuff out on there too. Um, do you know somebody that is, you know, understands attachment and trauma and the unique features that come with adoption that we could refer to? So with the right kind of help, there's a lot of hope.
what I think has happened is we're often not giving families the right kind of help. Hmm. Such good words. Well, thanks for those resources. I'm sure you'll probably get a lot of private messages after this. (laughs) I live in so-and-so state and such and such a town, you know, (laughs) hook me up. Cause I know that that even in our story was a big part of that was we could move the needle with the right kind of help, but it was not easy to come by. And so I thank you for the work that you're doing and for the information that you've shared. It's, you know, so helpful to have that perspective of a professional who's doing this day in and day out, who can say, no, I've seen the really tough things and I know that we can, I know that we can help. So is there anything that you didn't get to say that you would really like to leave our families with? That's going through my mind is the importance, you know, in criticizing what's in the DSM uh, currently to diagnose um, there is another construct that uh, a group along with Vessel uh, van der Kolk developed called Developmental Trauma Disorder. And I think there's some really good information out there on that, uh, understanding developmental trauma disorder and complex trauma rather than RAD. Because what has happened with reactive attachment disorder is people have added on these unscientific extensions that are really like these lists on the internet, preoccupation with blood and gore, these there is no scientific evidence for those. So, I mean, I, I, I want to give people some words that, that you can like look at that are scientifically based ideas about this. Just that, you know, there, there is hope. You know, when I started this work in the 90s, we did not know nearly what we know now about the brain and about how we can heal um, attachment and trauma issues. And, and what is needed for that. So we are, we are making progress. We are finding, and, and I do appreciate what Dr. Purvis, you know, brought, brought, um, to, to us too. Uh, she always said no one model is complete though, you know, so we know that it can't be, you know, you just throw this one thing at it. Every child is different. So what works with one doesn't always work with the other. So, you know, just keep, keep searching um, for the right kind of help. Well, thanks for those words. And thank you so much for taking your time to share with our families your expertise on this issue. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate Karen coming on and sharing from all of her knowledge and wisdom and many, many years of experience. What a gift to all of us. She has generously offered us a free download to share with all of you, our listeners, titled, I Think My Child Has Attachment Problems, Now What? This is a great resource. Be sure to go to the show notes where you will find a link to download this free resource. You can also get in touch with Karen through Chaddock. She's also on LinkedIn. We will have quick links to that also at the show notes. Um, you can find those at theadoptionconnection.com slash 51. Before you go, we'd love to connect with you on social media. You can find us on Facebook or Instagram as The Adoption Connection. Thanks so much for listening. We love having you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a quick review over on iTunes. It will help us reach more moms who may be feeling alone. And remember, until next week, you're a good mom doing good work, and we're here for you. The music for the podcast is called New Day, 
and was created by Lee Rosevier.